When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful you're spending time with us. Uh, Thank you, Evergreen Podcast Company, part of that team now. And uh, I am Matt Harris, Seton Tucker. Where can they find us? You can find us on Facebook at Impact of Influence. And we welcome your comments and criticism and praise. Whatever you want to give us, we can take it. Now we want to revisit an interview that we posted on June 22nd with Becky Hill, the Colleton County Clerk of Courts, just before the release of her book. So we're going to go through Parts of that interview, there was parts that we talked about a lot of different things, but only that this is the narrowed down to just anything to do with the Murdoch trial in her book. And we'll stop down occasionally and dive a little deeper into it. And it does seem that this interview may have come up in the ethics complaint reading her yes. response. Not may have, definitely in there, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that maybe our episode was listened to. Let's take a listen. Well, you just mentioned that you're writing a book, which is called Behind the Doors of Justice. When did you right. decide to write a book and when will it be out? I, I think I first got the idea to write the book when we were pre- preparing for the trial about four months before January of 2023, when we heard that the judge had ordered the trial to be uh, fast-tracked and that it would be held in January. Interesting. You know, I think maybe this was a fleeting thought because she changes a little bit what she says further in the interview. Um, I think that a lot of people have goals to write a book in their life and you think, oh, someday I'm going to write a book. But that doesn't necessarily mean that she was going into this trial thinking the whole step, oh, what's my next uh, thing that I'm going to write in my book? I think she was focused on making sure that the trial ran smoothly. Yes, the because the, the controversy on that segment there is that she said, I had an idea to write the book when the date was set, which was October 13th, four months before the trial. Yeah. The people have latched on to that, and you're saying maybe it was just a vague thought. I mean, have you personally, have you ever thought, oh, I might want to write a book at some point? Uh, Yeah, maybe. But uh, I know that I, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I started writing a book before I started this podcast, and yeah. I've, I need to dig that out. Um, and then right. I'm sure there are much more qualified people who but, decided to write books on this whole Murdoch right. stuff. But that's the controversy right there. Yeah. Because at some point, if she's thinking about writing the book, I still don't think that that means there's jury tampering. If she thought of writing the book because – like the the prosecution would say, it's beneficial if Alec is convicted for her book, and I don't. I think the book still works whether he's convicted or not. Oh yeah, I mean, so I, I've I've also seen the argument uh, on social media that him being found not guilty would maybe even be better for book sales. So, yes. Yeah, so this does. So to me, 
when she decided to write the book does not prove that she wanted to tr- wanted it to end up in a certain way. Absolutely okay. not. Right, let's continue. So we did a lot of preparation here in Colleton. We met with law enforcement. We met with city officials, county officials. Everybody came together so well. So with the book, um, I kept copious notes during the trial. And the more that the trial went on, I could just tell that there was such a story to be told behind the doors of what was going on. Uh, So the part that I've gotten a few emails and comments on has been that she talked about taking copious amounts of notes during the trial. And someone had asked, well, should she be doing that if she is doing her role as clerk of courts? And when she says she takes copious amounts of notes, I don't necessarily think that means dur- like literally as the trial. Like it could be at the end of the day. At the end of the day, she could have been journaling and take making a, doing a diary type situation at night. I, I, I don't know. I mean, she seemed focused. Also, she says, we did all these preparation things. She seems like she was doing that. And maybe when she got home at night, she would process by taking notes. I don't know. She doesn't answer know. the question in this of whether she's taking these notes in preparation for a book or not. And does that even matter? Yes. And, and we have to remember when we did this interview, there was not really controversy about her writing the book. So our questioning was a little different, although we both were very surprised that she was writing a book. It seemed a little off to us. I don't know that it seemed off to me. I thought that it was an interesting perspective that she was going to come, that she was going to tell the story. Well, we think we questioned at the time if she was, you know, was she allowed to do this? It seems like I've never heard this done before, but it could have been done and we don't know. So I think we kind of were like, oh, but then when she said she got, well, we'll get to that, her getting approval for it. But yeah. That um, the note thing, I think you could see her during the trial. I don't think she could be. Oh, she wasn't taking it during no, the day. That's what I'm I mean, saying. she yeah. was busy. All right. All right. Let's continue. There were so many things like the egg lady and how, what about those eggs, you know, <laughs> and more into the story of what was going on there. So many things with the judge, with the people that came in the crowd, the crowds meeting at 3 30 in the morning sometimes. Um, and different things that went on with the media. The idea came, and when the trial ended, I took two weeks off and to wrap my head around life and getting back to a normal kind of pace. And on the third week, I said, I really need to put this mm-hmm. into writing. And that's when it happened. I connected with Neil Gordon, who lives in Augusta with his wife, Melissa, who's a photographer. And she had been to Colleton, and I met her on like the second to the last day of the trial. She and I immediately bonded. We connected about that third week in March, and the, the idea for the book became born. So that tracks with what the Gordons are saying. Right. I mean, so she, maybe she had this fleeting thought to write the book uh, when the back in October when they said that they were going to fast track the trial. It was going to start in January. Um, but then she says in this clip that it didn't really come to fruition until she had taken a little bit of time off after the trial concluded and that she had time to think about it. And at that point is when she really started taking action to write the book. March 2nd is when the jury came back. So she takes two weeks off, whatever that be, you know, mid-March, like she said, third week. And she doesn't mention knowing Melissa Gordon other than what she said the day before. 
uh, at the near the end of the trial. So that tracks with what they're saying. This whole thing where there's this controversy was Melissa Gordon there every day. Uh, Melissa says she was there four days. Becky Hill in this thing says she just met her at the end of the trial. But they did become fast friends. Yes, because I've never met anybody uh, just in passing, and then a couple weeks later, decided to write a book with them. Correct. Correct. So. Let's continue. I wrote furiously from the end of March until June, probably June the 1st. Now, when you decided to write this book and you started to tell people that you're writing this book, how did the, the fellow court employees or attorneys or judges or what was the feedback from the community within that courthouse about you writing this book? Everybody wanted to know if they were going to be in it, <laughs> um, but it was overwhelming. I'd say it was overwhelming, encouraging, and I've had a few friends, a few judges, a few uh, attorneys who were just, just cautious about be, being an elected official and writing a book like this while an appeal is still in the process um, of being in the courts. So... Th- few friends, judges, attorneys who were cautious about writing the book while the appeal was going. That's an interesting comment. I also think I wonder if she would take back the book if she could at this point. That's a very good question I'd like to ask her. But also you notice something else. Yeah, they said uh, the uh, a lot of the other employees were wondering if they were going to be in the book. And there have been some uh, clamoring about possibly these ethics complaints were filed by a disgruntled uh, former employee, so maybe some of the people were not happy about her writing this book. Well, we know it seems like some of the jurors were not happy. Yeah, it does seem like that, but she didn't mention that. But we that, did that, that was in court filings. Yeah. But this also, you just wonder people were wondering if they're going to be in this book, or maybe there was some sort of professional jealousy, or people were not happy about how they were portrayed in the book. Possible. Let's uh, move on. So I've had to get authority from my uh, South Carolina Supreme Court Justice, Donald Beatty, which he has given. I've gone before the Ethics Committee, and I have um, something in writing from them that has told me that they allow this under certain conditions in which I have to follow. And so I've reached out to other people that are elected officials and talked to them about the way they handled it as well. So. I am I'm trying to be very, very um, cautious and doing the right thing about putting things in my book that are allowed and what's not allowed. So interesting, there is, at least at the time, I was, and I think you were too, correct me if I'm wrong, thinking that she got basically a green light from the ethics committee or whatever to go do it. Just, I didn't focus on the fact that it was not really as much of a, is a green light, but there's a lot of parameters. According to what Lori, Laura, Lori said, she said it was they don't they don't tell you yes or no. They give you the yes. pr- parameters, and I don't know. I mean, I think she listened to those parameters and thought that she was able to write the book within the guidelines that they gave her. All right, so uh, let's continue on. Let's get to Alec Murdoch. So, how often did you interact with him? Well, on a daily basis. Every time he would come into the courtroom every morning, he still addressed me as, good morning, Miss Becky. How are you? Now, you've known him? Did you know and him before this? I did. I did. I um, worked with him professionally as a court reporter, and I 
worked with him, you know, when he's an attorney coming into Colleton, um, even being in other places around the state, you know, we would get pleadings and stuff from the law firm. So I've known him for quite a while. Are you allowed to talk about his demeanor? What was his demeanor during the trial? And did it change as you got closer to the end? Uh, explain the vibe you got from Alec. In the beginning, I think he was very jovial. He was very, um, almost like he was an attorney there representing representing another defendant. And then it, it began to get very, it began to get very, how would you say it, very uh, tense. Um, mm. The air got a little, little tighter um, when the prosecution brought out the fact that the Snapchat video um gave a different story than what he was telling. Yeah. And uh, as the trial went on, things became more tense and uh, not a whole lot of talking. And especially the ending days, it was, it was very tough. Just, just the courtroom was filled with a lot of uh, emotion. Mm. Let's talk about one of our sponsors. It is factor. You can eat stress-free this spring with factors, delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh meal is never frozen and it is chef crafted, dietitian approved, uh, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, and they are ready in just two minutes. Where did you have chili the other day? Delicious. And if you want gourmet meals, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, asparagus. So head to factormeals.com slash impact50 and use code impact 50, 5 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code's IMPACT50 at factormeals.com slash IMPACT50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. IMPACT50 at factormeals.com slash IMPACT50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. I think that people don't realize what a small area this is and that Becky Hill knew Alec Murdoch. They had a relationship. She knew him professionally. Mm -hmm. And she's also told us personally that uh, their families went back. Some connection there. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's uh, continue. You were the person who read the guilty verdict. And I was in the yes. courtroom at this. It was really surreal. How was that for you? Well, I, um, it didn't hit me until I knew the jury had a verdict and then I thought, oh my goodness, I now have to read a verdict. I don't know what it is, but I hope it's the right thing. And you could, no one of us expected it to be that 
come back that quick. Did you, I mean, you didn't expect it, I would imagine. We had heard talk that some people thought it was going to take all weekend. Some people thought it would take into the next week. Some people thought it might even go two weeks. Um, I have to say that I had some interaction with my jury and we didn't talk about the case, but I knew from questions that they had. And when we did the site visit to Moselle that next to the last day, we didn't have to say a word because everyone's eyes, everyone's quietness told the whole story. And it showed being there on that property. It's almost as if Maggie and Paul were speaking from the grave that this is what happened. We could feel it. It, it was just it was just a feeling in the air, in the wind. Okay, we need to get to the Moselle visit. But first, I want to say, she says that she did not discuss the case with the jurors. And this is back in June before there was any controversy. Yes. But I mean, she knows what she's supposed to do and not do. So, But yes, she declared very clearly there. In the book, it says, uh, Alex's story was a possible. God gives us all gifts, and the gifts of discernment is shared by many. Some of us, either from the courthouse, law enforcement, or jury at Moselle, had an epiphany and shared our thoughts with our eyes. At that moment, many of us standing there knew, I knew, and they knew, that Alex was guilty. The, I guess the interesting part there is when you say shared our thoughts with our eyes, if you want to be suspicious, you can be, okay, that can say a lot. If you like yeah, roll your eyes. Rolling or, your eyes. But or, or I just the way up, you look. We don't know that she was sharing her thoughts with the eyes with the jurors or she was sharing her thoughts with the eyes. There was uh, some media uh, people point. who were there and other, uh, you know, law enforcement and those type of people. I don't yep. know. We don't know if she's sharing Correct. her thoughts with the eye, her eyes with jurors or other people who happened to be in attendance on this site visit. Because yeah, as many of us standing there knew, many of us, but didn't say who those people were. Right, exactly. One of the things she says uh, right after that is, once we were all back inside our vehicles, heavy-hearted and contemplative, a procession headed back along 63 toward the town center of Walterboro. The wind had died down mysteriously. The sun began to shine through the clouds. One of the roles of the clerk of court is to be Switzerland between the jury, the lawyers, the public, and other entities involved. In the moments riding back in our vehicle and with the jurors and decision makers in other vehicles, we were just regular people and our thoughts spilled out. Just as the jury would do in a span of three hours, we unanimously came to our own verdict in just three minutes, guilty. Take it how you will. But I, I would I would want to ask the question, how did the vehicle situation work out? They're riding back. Who is Becky Hill riding back with? Is right. she riding back with the jurors or is she riding back with members of law enforcement and media? Yeah. In the moments riding back in our vehicle and with the jurors and decision makers our in other vehicle. vehicles. So it doesn't sound like she's in with the jurors. No. Okay. Uh, let's continue. That was a major game changer. I think that was, that was the top three in the game changing of the trial. Yes. This trial lasted so much longer than any of us expected it to last. How did the jurors hold up? Were they getting fatigued at coming in for six weeks? I know they had to be tired. I do know that. But they were persistent. They were they were very bound and obedient to their job. They took, every one of those jurors took their job as a juror so seriously. They They knew that it was serious. And I believe, I mean, I can't tell you what they did when they went home, but 
I know many of them said that they took the judge's order to be exactly that. Because he told them when they went home, they were not to watch any TV, not to talk to anyone about what had happened, not to listen to the radio, not to read the newspaper. And most of every one of them said they didn't do that. I believe them. Well, I'm going to go back for a second. You said top three. So you got, there's Moselle Uh says one. What are the other two that you put on on, on the list? Well, that, we might just say four. Um, so the Snapchat video came yeah. right out of the gate. Right. And I think the second one was the information about the vehicles and the cell phones. Okay. All of that information that you just can't argue with. That tells a tale that is specific to a time and where a person is. And then the, the third one, I would say, would have been the visit to Moselle. Yeah. But I have to say also the jury did not respond well to the defendant getting on the stand and testifying. They were really, really turned off from that. Now, how does she know they really turned off? Were they talking about it? Was it something she picked up in body language, which which comes into play a lot? How does she know? She also knows that they didn't watch TV and newspapers and things. So was she discussing this with them? You know, I don't know, but you could read uh, body language from the jurors at certain points, especially when uh, Alec Murdoch testified. You could see how annoyed many of the jury members were just listening to him. They were not responding well, just as just a person who was sitting in the courtroom as she was. And uh, I I will say that in the book, when she says I'm supposed to be Switzerland and maybe I'm, I'm not saying she didn't perform her duties as Switzerland, but it's very clear in the book and in the interview that she thought Alec did it. And it was, you know, she said Moselle solidified it, but Snapchat video was on February 2nd. The verdict didn't come back until March 2nd, a month later. And she said the Snapchat video was a big thing. Uh, that was a big thing. I know. Yeah, it was a big I thing. I mean, but- I think everyone who saw that Snapchat video was like, wait a second, you lied. And that was the lie yeah. that made him get on the yep. stand. Overcome. Anyway, but I she, digress. I digress. Yeah, I'm saying that I think she thought Alec did it. Now, that doesn't mean she said anything to the jury, but I don't think she was really Switzerland. Uh, she acted like Switzerland, but in her head, she knew. I think anyone who was in the courtroom, you would have to... Wonder, yes. You, If you saw that video, you're like, woo, that's yeah. bad news for Alec Murdoch <laughs> if he wants to get off of this, you know, these charges. Here's more. You see a lot of jury trials. Can you always read a jury pretty well as to how they, not necessarily the verdict, but how they react to testimony and things? Most of the time you can. A lot of people can hide it. Most can't. How often are you surprised by a jury verdict? There's always that element of surprise. But I kind of felt in that, what they call that woman's gut, I kind of knew what they were thinking. And I had hoped and prayed that justice would be done. Well, there you have it. She hoped and prayed that justice would be done. Well, friends, uh, before we wrap, we have some comments that were made about the shoe. Well, I want to say first, um, we've gotten a a lot of comments uh, and reviews, and it seems like this whole thing has turned into teams. Like, you know, we've gotten, we're Team Murdoch, or you're you're Team Becky, and I think- Team Lori, Team Gordon's, Team this, that. Exactly. I think we're Team Truth. And sometimes it's really hard to- uh, talk about things when you like someone or you you want the truth to be in one direction. I mean, who really is Team Alec Murdoch? I mean, I don't nobody. Think, I mean, maybe there's some wackos who are, but for the most part, I think people know that he's a despicable guy and that they're 
it's not a team. It's not a team thing, and it seems to be that way on social media, which or on some other broadcast entities. And also, I'd like to say that somebody I, I, we all agree that innocent until proven guilty, of course. However, when you have everybody, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, Court TV, the reason they have attorneys on there is so attorneys can give, uh, analyze things and give opinions. Uh, there, and sometimes those lead to that attorney believing that person is guilty or not guilty. So we just try to give everybody a voice as much as possible. Okay, so a couple of Apple reviews. First one I'm going to read, Run Seton. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Good Lord. I can't listen to Matt and his nonsense anymore. Nothing he says is based in reality. Run, Seton, and do your own thing. Okay, run, Seton. I've thought about it. And I, I know she has. Every, every woman that's ever been near me has thought about it. <laughs> then we got a nice one that says, balanced coverage. I appreciate your willingness to allow everyone the opportunity to express their opinion. Most are unwilling to share both sides of the story. Thank you for getting us. Um, yeah, that's cool. Bias much. This podcast is getting ridiculous. Uh, okay, this one is formally entertaining. I'd like to start off by saying I like Seton and Matt. He reminds me of a goofy high school teacher. <laughs> That's true. And she seems smart and funny. All right. Thank Seton. you. I, this might be one of my family members. Uh, both seem sincere. Uh, I apologize. I toggle between impact and MMP up through the trial, and perhaps because it was so compelling, I listened to these podcasts post-trial. I think, however, both podcasts are struggling to find relevance post-verdict. Impact is particularly is now giving TikTok wackos, um, wackadoos a additional platform to bulldoze her opinions over everyone, and, was li and listening to Attorney Joe was excruciating. It is clear that both of these guests enjoy the sound of their own voices above all else. Uh, just because people are attorneys and have opinions and perhaps audiences does not mean they are worth listening to or that they add value to the conversation. Anyway, I suppose I'll keep listening to Impact, please do, and just avoid the episodes with Joe and TikTok Lady. Um, but <laughs> I bet you can all find better folks with similar post-trial takes. A P.S. I like the old intro better. It reminded me of a veterinarian hospital skit from the Muppet Show, and I will, that always made me smile. I don't know what the old remember was. we had. Remember, I, I yeah, know the, did like the no, old one. I right, think the old one though. I, I I was having like PTSD with that old one. I listened to it too much, so I think I I advocated I for changing it. I don't even recall, but uh, I do know that uh, you know, like Joe's important because he represents jurors. That are involved. I think and Joe is important, and and Lord that's a good it. point. You don't have to listen to every episode. True. If we have someone True. on that you don't want to hear from, then certainly don't listen. Uh, yes, and um, we and someone asked me about whether they thought Lori was relevant, and I said, yeah, of course, I think she's relevant. She's a practiced law in our state for uh, I think twenty twenty ish wow. plus or minus years. And there was a big article on the the state paper about her couple articles and uh she has a lot of followers and she's on court tv she's a regular on court tv uh so yes she's relevant because of all those things yeah she follows it she's an attorney in our state and knows a lot of attorneys evolved and uh knows gets some inside information on occasion and if she's not your style of course don't listen don't listen to that i one. mean there's some yeah. episodes that i i don't like and that wasn't one of them that i didn't like but you know sometimes i, I have a guest that 
for some reason I have an off day or the guests have sure. an off day. And I'm like, uh, that's not yeah. one of my favorites. But also, uh, I do want to let you all know, if you don't know, especially the person who talked about relevance and such, uh, we've been doing other things other than Murdoch. We've had a couple of Pee Wee Gaskins. And we've covered Shanquilla. We hope that, you know, we hope and pray that there's some developments in that yeah. case. And um, we are working on other ones. So it's not all going to be uh, Murdoch. It just, in fact, we, would, we all assumed Murdoch would have been over about six months ago. No, but, <laughs> the, you know, with the relevant stuff, we really, I felt like we had to cover this clerk of court stuff. Yes. I mean, I go. didn't want to cover it because I personally like Becky Hill and I hope and pray that none of these things are true. Right. So there you go. Keep on uh, sending this crazy high school teacher and the smart, funny one some thoughts. Smart, funny one, yes. <laughs> You're going to tell your husband and kids today, aren't you? I am. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to print it out and lay it around the house. Uh, it is Impact of Influence on Facebook, and we are grateful. We'll talk soon, friend. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport... Then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.